Father, these times seem so dark around the world, and there was even a man from the Federal Reserve that came out and said, we need another six weeks of total shutdown economically. I pray that that would not be the case. I pray that um, you would enable us to open back up. There are people suffering, and there have been more suicides, in particular age groups, uh, deaths that are caused by suicide, as opposed to the COVID disease taking lives. And and we would ask, Lord, that you would, uh, especially with the young who have experienced this suicide rate, I pray that you would have people, have believers be able to reach out to them, place them on our hearts. May we be praying for them all week long. And we know that people have lost everything, Lord, whether it's through the stock market or uh, just not being able to hold their businesses open. Father, you know the stress and the turmoil that we are experiencing. But we ask just for a brief time, Lord, as we go through your word, that you would provide for us some instruction for when we get back together and how the church is supposed to operate and the proper use of the gifts. Father, we know that you left us your word uh, to leave us a direction, a guidebook, And so we ask that you would help us to devour it and remember it. And this all for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, using gifts properly uh, is good in a healthy church. Uh, And there are a list of gifts inside of the scriptures. And Paul sandwiches, we know, the love chapter, chapter 13, between chapter 12 and chapter 14, dealing with these gifts. And specifically in chapter 14, he delivers a blow to those inside the church who would uh, teach that tongues is the ultimate gift. Now, previously I went through and I uh, delineated or I set in columns and rows how the gift of tongues is supposed to be used, but he really spells it out in chapter 14 here. And we want to make sure that we go over that Again, and these gifts, the, the sign gifts like that, and the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy, uh, they are gifts only for a moment because when Christ redeems his church, there will be no need for these gifts anymore. And the gifts are meant to complement what is done inside the church. So in chapter 14 and verse 1, he jumps back from the love chapter to the gift of tongues. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, and so you can see the difference there right away, where somebody who speaks in a tongue speaks to God, but those who speak prophecies, they speak for the encouragement, the strengthening, and the comfort of the body of Christ. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. So again, the context here is there were divisions in the church. There's 
Christians suing each other. There were just problems all over this infant church. And Paul seeks to correct those, and specifically with the gift of tongues, because there were those who taught that those who had the gift of tongues were the most spiritual in the church. And Paul, as I said earlier, is delivering a blow to that type of thinking. So to go through a list of things that we will read here in Scripture, just so you can get it condensed. Tongues are used when believers speak to God. Tongues are a lesser gift unless they are interpreted. He says, unless you interpret, you know, go ahead and and know that tongues are a lesser gift. When speaking in a tongue, always seek the interpretation. And some people say you can pray in a tongue and that's wonderful and the spirit is edified if, if somebody wants to do that. But we are always to seek the interpretation for those who speak in tongues, whether it is in a, a prayer language or it is inside a church service. And inside a church service, two or at the most three are supposed to speak in the tongues and no more than that. And there always must be an interpretation of those tongues. And we'll read these verses that actually say this. And if there is no interpretation uh, for uh, the gift of tongues, the speaker is to remain silent. Uh, tongues is used to give thanks to God. In verses 16 and 17, it says that twice. And tongues is a sign for unbelievers and not for believers. Prophecy is a sign for believers. And tongues should not be spoken by a multitude at one time. And there are several churches that practice this where they will all start praying at once. Usually it's led by the pastor or somebody else in ministry. And everybody starts praying out loud. Some pray out loud in English and some pray out loud in tongues. And it's just like a whole room filled with people speaking different languages. And we're not supposed to be doing that in the corporate setting, the Lord tells us. An interpretation needs to always follow someone who speaks in tongues, and if there's no interpreter, the speaker should remain silent, as I previously said. Tongues should not interrupt prophecy and vice versa. We'll see that our God is a God of order, and apparently there were people inside the church who would bust into tongues right when somebody was giving a prophecy. And the use of the gift should operate in a controlled manner. The speaker is always in control and never out of control. And that's what this scripture says here. Some people believe that you can be so overtaken by the Holy Spirit that the things that you utter are not, you are not in control of that. And the scripture says the spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. So nobody gets out of control when a spiritual gift is being used. So prophecy, as I said, when used is God speaking to people and tongues when used is people speaking to God. And it is better to instruct the body in intelligible words than to speak in a tongue with no interpretation. And so this is the balanced view from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 of how these are supposed to be used. Now we're going to read about all of these things beginning in verse 6 of chapter 14. And these gifts are meant for the betterment of the church. Unless they're misused, then it does damage. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as a flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a is a distinction in the notes. Again, if a trumpet 
does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. So somebody who speaks in tongues with no interpretation does not build up the church. But somebody who speaks in a tongue and has an interpretation or somebody who speaks at prophecy, they have the job of building up the church, and that's in fact what they do. In verse 13, For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. And that is the goal is to benefit the entire body of Christ by the use of the gifts. It's not simply to edify self, even though if somebody speaks in a tongue, they may, in fact, be edifying themselves, but no one else is edified. I thank God, verse 18, that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brother, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And this is where it's clear that tongues then, verse 22, are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So the Christians thought that when the gifts of tongues were exercised, that it was a sign uh, to other believers of true spirituality. It was the pinnacle. And Paul says, no, that is not the case. Because somebody speaks in a tongue, it only edifies himself if there is no interpretation. Now here, the gifts can be an impediment. They, they can slow people down. They can draw people back in their spiritual walk if they are used improperly. Verse 23, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and someone who does not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Now, I have actually experienced this in a a couple of churches that I've been in, both in Mexico and up here in the United States. And the first time I experienced that, I thought this very thing, that these people are out of their minds. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Uh, this is be like a word of knowledge, God speaking uh, to the people, maybe a, a word of some something that's going on in somebody's life, 
uh, a prophet or somebody with a gift of prophecy will be able to say what that is. The person will be convicted, and because of that, they will humble themselves before God. So that's why prophecy is head and shoulders above the gift of tongues, unless there is an interpretation. Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So he's not saying, do not do these things. They can be practiced in the church. But if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most, three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So apparently inside the church, people were standing up randomly and they would give a prophecy. They would speak in a tongue and sometimes there would be several doing it at one time. And Paul says, no. And if an individual would come up, which apparently was the case here, where they said, well, the Spirit of God just took over me and I couldn't control myself. That's basically a lie from the enemy. And we're not to pay attention to that. The Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. Going on with this. As in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, here, this has often been touted as something that women must never say anything inside of a church whatsoever. And, of course, we have examples in the book of Acts where women would prophesy uh, inside the church, and to do that, they have to speak. So there's something else going on here. And as far as women remaining silent in the church, we don't have women, especially in this day and age, and come in and put tape across their mouths because we don't want them speaking. Because whenever they open their mouths, there could be sin, something like that. And there are some radical views on this. I remember teaching a Bible study, and we had a couple come. This was probably a couple decades ago. And this couple was attending regularly, and they really enjoyed it. And we had questions that we would do the previous week, and we'd come and we'd discuss the questions as we'd go through each book. And we found out that they just stopped coming, and we couldn't find out why they stopped coming until we knew somebody that knew them that told us what the reason was. And it was because the husband felt the women should not say a word inside of the Bible study because we'd call on each other and, and we'd ask for answers to these questions and that just drove him over the edge where he didn't think women should speak at all and he used these verses to say women should remain silent in the churches. And of course I believe that's a misinterpretation of what is going on. You have to remember the culture around Corinth at that time. There was a women's liberation movement. Feminism was uh, just as alive back then as it is today. And the radical feminism was alive back then, just as it is 
uh, today. And there would be women that would come in that would just interrupt and they would not be submissive to their husbands. And we know that God gives us a, a hierarchy. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And then there is the man or the husband. And after that is the wife. And after that are the children. And it doesn't mean that the husband, the wife, and the children are lesser in degree of importance. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's just that we have a position of authority. Jesus Christ is the head, then comes the husband, then comes the wife, then comes the child. It doesn't mean you don't listen to the wife if you were the husband. It doesn't mean the wife comes in and says, you better do this or else, that she's a threatening type of individual. But there were certainly problems within the church that were bleeding in from the outside of the pagan world or inside the pagan world into the church that was causing a disruption inside. And so the women were taught that you should be respectful of the men who are in authority inside the church and not just speak out of turn. If a woman has a gift of prophecy or she speaks in tongues and there's an interpretation that can take place, that is completely appropriate inside the church. Now it does say in the little epistle of Timothy that women are not to rule or have authority over men inside the confines of the church. And all that means is a woman is not to be a ruling elder. And there are specific reasons for that, and and the reasons are rooted in the fall. Uh, The woman in her perfect state was deceived when she was perfect. It's because of her very makeup. She is compassionate on the inside. She processes information differently, and that's what makes her a woman, and that is a good thing. And men don't always do that. Men think differently. Men think in columns and rows in their mind. And sometimes men don't think of things at all. They're just on a, a monotone path. And they're really not considering things. Where women are always considering things and processing the information along with their emotions. And men are more easily able to separate their emotion from what the responsibility dictates should be done. Women have a more difficult time with that. Uh, Women like to ask the question, well, but how do they feel? Where men would get their hair raised up on the back of the neck if that question was asked. And they said, it has nothing to do with how somebody feels. This is right and this is wrong. So we think differently. And because of the way that woman was created, she is more open to deception. And that's why God said, and and, and I'll explain that a little bit, but that's why God said he wants men in control. He would rather have a ministry where a man is able to just look at the facts and say, this is what we're supposed to do, rather than letting their emotion run away from them. Now, that does not mean that the man is not to listen to the woman or women inside the church and and how they feel it may be valid there may be a, a huge concern that the man is not paying attention to and he needs to pay attention to the counsel of the woman so they they work together but it's just in position of authority it's kind of like in the corporate world you have the president or chairman of the board or the ceo and it, it doesn't mean that Anybody in the company is less in value, but it does mean there is one who is responsible for the final uh, solution to a problem. And that's what God is talking about. 
that this position of authority, the one who makes the final decision, it is Jesus Christ, it is the husband, it is the wife, it is the children. And it goes in that order. But as far as worth is concerned, women are co-heirs with Christ. And just because they may have different positions in the church, it doesn't make them any less of a saint or any less spiritual. They are equal to men in every other way except for in a position of authority inside of a church. So going on, did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. So Paul here from verse 36 to 38, he's addressing those inside the church who would disagree with this teaching that comes from the Apostle Paul, and they would have a tendency to just shove it to the side and say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. And we get clues of that in Second Corinthians. But Paul is launching, not an attack, but a, a, a direct mortar shell on this idea that if what Paul is saying is not true, we'll let the man basically be accursed. He's teaching another gospel, and he explains this in the book of Galatians. You know, with those who are teaching another gospel about circumcision. And we need to pay attention to what the apostles have passed down to us, specifically Paul the Apostle, who authored so many of the epistles in the New Testament. So if anyone thinks he is spiritual, he should be agreeing with this because the Spirit of God, he is one with the Father and the Son, and he's one with us, and he lives in us. If somebody disagrees with this teaching then he is listening either to the devil or his own flesh. Going on in verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Just what is implied here is things were being done in a disorderly way inside the church. There was mayhem, and it was leading not only to abuse or further abuse inside the church, but for people having their faith maybe even shipwrecked and just walking away from the church. Now going into chapter 15, we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection body, which is talked about here. And if there is no resurrection, as we will read, we are doing all of this in vain. Everything that we do inside the church, it doesn't matter. For those people who are humanists or secularists, that believe that when we die, that's it. The Sadducees were like that, that there was nothing after we die. When we go into the grave or our bodies are cremated, that is it. It's as if we fall asleep and never dream and never wake up. We are never conscious. We never know what is transpiring around us in the world or if there's something else beyond this world, we're just unaware. And that is the view of those who are the humanists. They think that they are the end all uh, for everyone on earth. And of course, that is not the case. And Paul goes through and he makes an argument uh, for the resurrection of Christ, how important it is. If chapter 15 was not in the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians, then everything we're doing is just in vain. And he gives this treatise, he gives this, this term paper, so to speak, on what the resurrection represents. And he used four different arguments in this chapter to prove that the resurrection is in fact a real event and that everybody is going to be resurrected and there is going to be a body that is going to be our resurrection body. 
And these four arguments are, first, historical. He goes back into history. Second one is logical. You think through this logically. The third argument he makes is theological. And the last argument he makes is experiential. And so to give this by way of an example, uh, this year there's not going to be here in San Diego the Del Mar Fair. And say you told somebody that the Del Mar Fair last year that you went to it, and they said, you didn't go to that fair. I don't believe that for a minute. Then you launch into, what are you talking about? I went to the fair, and you could use an historical argument. I told you I wanted to go to the fair last year. You were there when I discussed it with my wife. That would be an historical argument. You're appealing to something that is common knowledge. Then secondly, there is the logical argument that you would use on going to the fair. Why would I have taken time off of work? Obviously, the person would have known this. When they were advertised, I bought the tickets on the Internet, and you probably have an Internet receipt that's there. And I got a babysitter, the same one that you and your family use to go to the fair. And so that would be the logical argument. You took all these steps, and obviously you're doing that for a reason. You have evidence, which is there, so you have the historical argument, you have a logical argument, and a theological argument. This would be something that you would have in writing, in the past, that you could point to, just like we would for a theological argument. We go to the past and we make an appeal to Scripture. You could say, I have an email confirming my purchase of the tickets, and I also have receipts for my purchases at the fair. So that would be like the theological argument. And then the last one was, or would be, we went together in years past, and you know how I enjoy it, so you're appealing to the experience itself. Well, Paul does that with the resurrection. He uses these four. Again, they are the historical argument, the logical argument, the theological argument, and the experience argument. (coughs) Excuse me. So the resurrection of Christ. Here's the historical argument that he launches into in verse 1. And this is the prep, the uh, intro to it. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. So he points out what he wants to bring to remembrance, and he's specifically talking about the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? I preach to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you were saved. Oh, so the gospel has the power to save. And if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So this word gospel is used 96 times in the New Testament in the NIV. So what is the gospel? Well, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Galatians 3, 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the gospel is the good news. The good news is specifically, excuse me, is specifically Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 1 says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the historical argument. He's referring back to something in history that transpired that, that let us know that this gospel was going to go to the rest of the world, and we are beneficiaries of that. Verse 3, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. So he recounts the historical event where he got the gospel. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he goes from the scripture to complete experience, and it's all historical. These things can be um, verified. The fact that he was buried verifies his death. And the fact that he was appearing to over 500 people verifies his resurrection. And so we have this historically verified. And James, more than likely, came to faith as a result of the resurrection, James being the brother of Jesus, For we know that the brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that. But it also tells us in scripture that his brothers came to believe. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this is the historical account. He goes on in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. So Paul came to faith as a result of the resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. And so there is an historical account of this in verse 9, chapter 3 through 6. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. So that is the historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He recounts everything that happened and all those who were touched by the appearing of Jesus Christ. And the 500 that were there, uh, at the time the letter was written, they could have refuted what was going on as far as the resurrection. If Paul wrote this down, they could say, ah, we didn't see Jesus. I don't know what he's talking about, but nobody did. There's no historical record of that. Then there is the resurrection of the dead. There's a logical argument for this. And that's what he goes through, beginning in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And it's explicit in the text. Some were teaching there is no resurrection. And of course, these are the Sadducees that were teaching this, and probably those who had no faith in God at all, atheists. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he just went through the historical argument, how Christ was raised, and 500 people at one time saw him. There were more than that that eventually saw him. But 500 people at one time could testify to this. So deny to deny a bodily resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Christ. In verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so he's saying all of Christianity is without merit if there is no resurrection of the dead by this logical argument. 
To deny the resurrection would be to call the apostles charlatans or imposters or fakes or frauds. And so if there are people inside the church who are saying there's no resurrection, by extension, they're calling all of those apostles fraud. Verse, or frauds. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, if there is no resurrection, because there's so much evidence for it. And, and it says, the sting of death remains on those who are believers and have died. That means anyone who has ever lived, they will remain dead. They will never be resurrected and neither has Christ been resurrected. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then there is also, or excuse me, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So we're chasing something that is a falsehood if we do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection, the cross of Christ would be foolishness. And I would say if there was no resurrection, forget church, go live your life the way you want to. There is no such thing as sin. You are lost and and it doesn't matter what you do in this life. That is if there is no resurrection. But in fact, that is the logical argument for the existence of Jesus being resurrected. I'll repeat these again in order. Some teachers were teaching that there is no resurrection. Second, to deny a bodily resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Christ. To deny the resurrection of Christ is to have an empty faith. To deny the resurrection would be to call the apostles charlatans and imposters. The sting of death remains on those who are believers and have died. And if there were no resurrection, the cross of Christ would be foolishness. So that is the logical argument for the existence of the resurrection and specifically the glorified Jesus Christ who has been resurrected from the dead. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a hint of the theological argument for the existence of God. They had this feast in Leviticus chapter 23. It was called the feast of first fruits, where they had gathered the first fruits of the field. And this took place during the week of Passover. And they would bring in these first fruits and offer it to God. It was the best of the harvest. And they would bring it in and offer it, like I said, in the temple. He goes on to say in verse 20, But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, he goes back to Genesis chapter 3, and it's also in the book of Romans, that death came to all men because all sinned. And, and through that one man, death came to all of us through Adam. And so that's what he's referring to. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And this is what is known as the first resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of the first resurrection. Those of us who are believers will come next, and that will happen at the rapture of the church in Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, also John chapter 14. And and so it takes place in three different sections. We have that, we have, uh, excuse me, Christ being raised, we are raised, and at the end 
uh, of the tribulation period, we know that uh, the Jews are going to be resurrected at that point, and all Israel is going to be saved. And, and so that's part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection is where judgment comes for all those who are not saved, but those who will be saved during the millennial reign of Christ, they will be resurrected and they will be brought into glory as well. But that takes place in the second resurrection. It's always good to make sure that you are part of the first resurrection. Those people who say, I'm not going to accept Christ and if I go through the tribulation, I'll just accept them then. During the tribulation, there's going to be a great delusion where it may be very difficult for people to get saved. Even though the 144,000 go out, there are differing views on this that the Jews are going to be evangelists and a great multitude will come out of the tribulation being saved and others say, you don't know if you're going to be deceived by this great delusion that is going to be sent to prevent people from being saved. So we need to make sure that we have accepted Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. We've confessed our sins. We have a broken and contrite heart over that. And if that's the case, if you do all that, then you are part of the first resurrection. Going on, he makes this theological argument. Uh, a little more clear in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, it says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. Also, Exodus 23:16, Celebrate the feast of harvest with the first fruits of your crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. And Exodus 23:19 says, Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So some other things are listed there. But it's this idea of first fruits. You bring them uh, to God. Jesus is the first fruits, and we are part of that first resurrection. So the gathering of the grain was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ, being the first fruits of the resurrection, just as the first fruits of the harvest were offered to God with the rest of the harvest to follow. We are the rest of the harvest that follows. Verse 21 of this chapter, For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. And so this is uh, what we know from Scripture being the theological uh, argument for the existence of the resurrection. It goes on in verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death and death will be vanquished at that point verse 27 says for he has put everything under his feet now when it says that everything has been put under him it is clear that this does not include god himself who puts everything under christ and when he has done this then the son of god will be made subject to him or excuse me the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So he has the historical argument, the logical argument, the theological argument. He explains what Christ is going to be doing as a result of this resurrection. Everything is going to be under him, and we need to be aware of that. And the last argument he goes through is the experience argument. Now, verse 29, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, there are 
the Mormons who believe that we're supposed to be baptized for the dead. That's why you have Ancestry.com. It was created to go back, for the Mormons, to go back in their lineage to see who their ancestors were, that they might fare better at the resurrection. And they practice baptism for the dead. And in their temples, they have this giant laver. It's to mimic the one that Solomon had. And there are bulls that are underneath it, uh, the three on each of the four sides of north, south, east, and west. And people get baptized not only for themselves, but for the dead as well. So you look up your ancestors, you say, oh, uh, look at this, great-grandpa Harry wasn't a believer, so I'm going to get baptized for him. And they believe that because of this verse. I'll read it again. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So even though the Mormons didn't exist back then, there were pagans who were being baptized for those who had passed on already, and they thought it was meritorious for them that they would somehow benefit even though they were dead. And he's not making that argument at all. He is simply saying there are those who are not even believers that practice baptism for the dead because they have this hope of the resurrection. So if unbelievers have this hope, we need to have this hope as well, especially based on the historical, logical, and theological arguments. Now you have the experiential arguments. It was this vicarious baptism that unbelievers we're practicing. In verse 30, he makes another experiential argument here. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? So we know that Paul was fighting. It could have been a lion. It could have been a bear. Who knows what it might have been, but in that area, uh, the, the country of Israel, there were wild animals. We know that King David slew wild animals like that with his sling. And, and he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And of course, that is a quote from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. And that is the counsel. If there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. There is no need to continue following Christ or to be in the church or to pray or do any of that if there is no resurrection. Now, of course, Jesus, he taught this in his life that there would be uh, a resurrection. And if there was not, just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He talked about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 19. It says, and I say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Of course, he was telling a parable here of somebody who had tons stored up for himself, and all he has to do is take life easy. When he doesn't realize this particular individual in Luke, doesn't realize that there is a resurrection. And I think Jesus went on to say, this very night your life will be required of you. And so we want to make sure that we are not following the way of the Epicureans who believe the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain was the way to live this life. Uh, it is the pain and the trial that shapes us and the pursuit of pleasure. We know that the, the Lord has told us that those who seek after pleasure in their life, they're dead while they're still alive. And, and so the resurrection is something that is valid by these four arguments 
for us, ending it here in verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, why does he insert this right here in the text? He's calling those who say there is no resurrection bad company. So don't hang around with them. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So that's how he ends this portion of scripture that those who teach there is no resurrection, they're fools. They're crazy. There is a resurrection and there is ample evidence for this. You have to close your eyes plug your ears and speak with your mouth so you don't see the evidence which is right in front of all of us. And the final question here is, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you really believe it? Do you live like you believe in the resurrection? And this is what God calls us to, that this life is going by the wayside. There's nothing that is redeemed in this life as well. Right now, as I look at the state of our country, and people are trying to figure out what to do. In the stock market, it's going up and down, and it's raising a little more, and the jobs are up right now, but we are spending like there is no tomorrow. And if you talk to any financial advisor, there's, they'll tell you that you personally cannot spend like there is no tomorrow, and neither can the government. And with that being said, what is the end result? And all you have to do is ask yourself, what if I kept on spending? What would be the end of the result? Financial ruin. You would go into bankruptcy. It used to be debtor's prison. And you would have nothing at the end of it. Well, that's what's going to happen eventually worldwide because the world economies, they're all outspending what they have. And we are going to face severe trials and there is going to be a rapture and there is going to be a tribulation and there is going to be a resurrection. And so we need to live like that is the case. We don't know if tomorrow, you know, if these uh, riots that are up in Portland and Seattle and New York, if they don't spread to the rest of the country, we know that they're in other cities like Detroit. Uh, we know that they're in Los Angeles as well, and they're trying to get an upstart here in San Diego. Uh, well, what happens if all that takes place and there's chaos throughout the land, and there's a financial collapse, do we live like there's a resurrection? Do we not worry about it? What if everything is taken away? Oh, well, we have a better inheritance. That's why we need to act and live like we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for this is our blessed hope, his glorious appearing. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, and how it tells us we have this future destiny. And for those who don't believe, they have a future destiny as well, the second resurrection, where judgment takes place. And we know that our resurrection, it has reward. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us, that you have led and guided us in the ways that we should go. Just help us, Lord, to subdue the flesh in this effort, that we would not give into it like the Epicureans, but we would make sure that we are upright in our attitudes and that we walk an ethical and moral life. And, and Father, we know that we often fail, but your word also tells us that you are a gracious, loving, and kind God who forgives sin. And so for everyone that's watching, Lord, and those here in the room, I would pray that your grace would be given in abundance, that we'd actually feel it, that your spirit rests upon us, 
and protects and guides us and know and that we will know that you're going to bring us to be with you in the future in the resurrection. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.